Sometimes the most memorable stories we carry with us from military service were just the product of the branch of service we were in or the deployment we were on and the crazy stuff that happens when people with a mission and a common cause live in close quarters. And sometimes after our time in the service, we're lucky enough to find careers not too dissimilar to that with missions and with common cause for us to rally around. When we're lucky like that, we can continue to share stories of our shared history and experience and support one another through a bond that goes beyond the workplace. Jones Lang LaSalle and JLL's VetNet Business Resource Group brings you the MidWatch podcast in an effort to tell those stories and share that experience and build connections across generations of veterans at JLL and our broader community. And now the host, of the Midwatch Podcast, Dan Ediger. Hey everybody, you'll never guess what time it is. It's time for episode six of the Midwatch Podcast. We're coming to you live once again from Raleigh, North Carolina. Fun and sun and quarantine. Can't wait to get going on today's episode. Another special guest, yet another, it's incredible. Jones Lang LaSalle's VetNet community is full of incredible people. And we have another one here today. Joining the show today, Joe Cruz. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I appreciate you taking the time. We've been in touch now for for a week or so, and I've been excited to, to get you on the show here. So to kick it off, Let's hear a little bit about, about what you're doing now, kind of where you're at. If you have some family, tell us a little bit about that, what kind of hobbies you have, because we're going to talk about your JLL stuff towards the end of the show, but tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, originally from the Washington, D.C. area, grew up there. My dad was in the VA, worked there for a while. My mom was at the World Bank, so very much a child of the D.C. area. Ended up going to college in the Midwest. Didn't know anything about Notre Dame football when I applied <laughs> to school. I just really liked their architecture program. One of the highlights is a uh, third year of studies in Rome, Italy. That's mandatory. Wow. So when I was looking at all of the architecture schools I wanted to go to, that kind of popped up on the list. Um, married, I met my wife in the Air Force. She and I were stationed together in New Mexico. No kids, just got a couple of dogs. and. We're in Denver, Colorado. To stay busy right now with the quarantine, we're primarily walking our dogs as much as possible. They, they probably haven't been walked this much ever in their lives. <laughs> They're getting three walks a day, you know, a, a nice morning walk, a, a lunchtime walk, and then a long afternoon slash evening walk. We test a lot of recipes with whatever random food we can find in the house. I like to say that sometimes our dinners are like episodes of Chopped on the Food Network <laughs> where they give you a basket of randomness right. and then you try to make something that's edible out of it. We've been mildly successful, I guess, maybe maybe 60-40 on that one. And then trying to keep up with all the streaming content on the platforms because there is a lot. And, and I know we have more yeah. time now to watch TV than we ever have before. So I keep getting recommendations from people and we try to keep up with that. When we're not quarantined, we're outside as much as possible. You know, whenever, whenever you're, whenever you're not quarantined, correct? Whenever. Yes. 
<laughs> but previous to previous to the quarantine and then hopefully afterwards <laughs> we really try to stay outside as much as possible the weather is super good in in denver and in colorado in general and so we take advantage of all the sort of the mountain sports that we have available uh snowboarding hiking cross-country skiing try to get out on some outdoor patios and at a brewery quaff some beers there we also volunteer at a local animal shelter we walk dogs uh, every saturday morning again when they were open prior to quarantine spend about three hours walking dogs getting them ready for adoption and then probably about once a month i'm on tv with the shelter i bring a dog with me talk about the shelter talk about sort of the topic of the day at the shelter and, and try to get that dog adopted it's a lot of fun and when i'm not doing those things i mc roller derby games and I actually play on a roller derby team <laughs> here in Colorado. Oh my God, I've got roller derby questions. <laughs> you've got, yeah, you've got, there's a lot to unpack there with, uh, with, with what I just said. <laughs> well, I've got, I specifically have roller derby questions. <laughs> oh yeah, bring it on. Um, well, it sounds like you actually, you, you do everything first and foremost. <laughs> I was going to ask you before you brought up the roller derby thing, I'm going to go ahead and ask anyway. What kind of dogs do you have? They're just super mutts. Um, We did the the whole DNA testing thing with both of them. And the first one, the one we got back in 2013, he's eight now. Mm -hmm. He's like 12% German Shepherd, 12% Golden Retriever, 12% Cattle Dog. And then the rest they couldn't find out because it's so mixed. (laughs) And And they don't don't have one of those uh, genealogy things for dogs, correct? Well, no, they do. Um, it's actually really great. There's a couple of uh, wonderful DNA sites for dogs. Wisdom Panel is the one that we use. They have okay. a, a lot of DNA aggregated, and so they're able to find out quite a bit. The other one we have, we just got her in September. Mm-hmm. She's definitely 25% German Shepherd, but then the rest is a mixed bag. And she's she's only about 43 pounds, but part mm-hmm. of her breeding is Samoyed, which is that big, fluffy, white cloud dog. Yep. That usually is about 70 to 90 pounds. So I have no idea how they got that out of her. But yeah, basically super mutts. They're, they're pretty wonderful, pretty hilarious. They've got big ears and they make us laugh. That's so cute. <laughs> no, no cats. It doesn't sound like you have any cats. No, I'm very allergic. Oh, that's Cats are cool, but I'm allergic. So there's really no way we could have them yeah we got we got a, a kitten maybe three three months ago now or something like that and had to go through like the super formal adoption process this cat mm-hmm. the thing this it does when it walks up to you it really wants to hang out with you right it'll it'll kind of stand up on its back legs and put its its paws up as high as it'll go and it wants you to pick it up like a baby like when you reach down it holds its mm-hmm. arms up so you'll pick it up just like a baby that's a dog cat that's a dog cat <laughs> a dog cat <laughs> so we got the dogs got that what what kind of a tv station do you make appearances on it's the local abc affiliate mm-hmm. usually on sunday mornings i go on for about two minutes talk about the dog i've got usually in my arms or on the floor and then talk about a sort of a important topic for the day like once i talked about thanksgiving and what was okay to feed your dog on thanksgiving and the bottom line is none of it from your table <laughs> well, excellent now 
So now we've had a palate cleansing with those topics. Let's dig into sure. roller roller derby here. So, right. so what are the rules to roller derby? Can you help me out with this? Sure. And I guess it depends on what era of roller derby you're familiar with. There is sort of the 70s era of very similar to professional wrestling, mm-hmm. scripted, scripted violence and sort of chaos on eight wheels. Yep. The um, most recent incarnation, and this is sort of the early 2000s, is flat track. And flat track Whoa. is basically played anywhere that you have the space. So they don't have the bank track that you remember from the 70s or from mm-hmm. uh, maybe even popular culture like the movie uh, Whip It. That yep. was out in, uh, I think, late uh, 2009 or something like that. But it's really a race on skates. And the way that you score is you pass players on the other team. So the simplest way to describe the rules is you've got four people on each team in what's called the pack. Then you have two people with star covers on their helmets. (laughs) And they are called... So there is a a special helmet, right? (laughs) Correct. Well, it's a helmet cover, so you can kind of uh, move it to other players as you need to. And they're the ones that are, in effect, the ball. So they score the points. So the jammers have to pass the pack once. And Mm -hmm. once they pass the pack, every skater on the opposing team they pass, they gain one point. Okay. And that's really the simplest way to score points in roller derby. And rule-wise, in terms of sort of the violence and chaos that you might be familiar (laughs) with, is... It's really about hip checking. You can't use your forearms. You can't pull on people. You can't use your elbows. So the sort of the best uh, analogy for roller derby in terms of contact is a like a hockey check okay. minus using the stick at all. Can uh, can you roller derby? Me. Yes. I, I play on the I play on the men's team here in Denver. <laughs> do you, Do you have a stage name or do you go by Joe Cruz? Well, I um, I go by Cruz because oh, yeah. <laughs> for 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 a couple of reasons. So our league here in Denver, even before we had a men's team, the women's team was was really focused on using their real name as okay. sort of a goal to legitimize the sport a bit. Well, of course, of course. Um, and so I play as Cruz on the men's team, and then I play on Team Philippines because my my parents are from the Philippines, so I was okay. able to to play with Team Philippines. And two years ago, we played at the World Cup, uh, the Men's World Cup in Barcelona, Spain, Holy with Team cow. Philippines. And that was really cool to play. Sort of felt like playing with my cousins. It was just a bunch of Filipinos, mostly from uh, the U.S. We had a, a guy from the U.K. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the team. Um, but that was a lot of fun to wear a jersey with, you know, Filipino logos and emblems on it and and really represent you know the country of my heritage uh at this event but i used to also MC games so mm-hmm. be an announcer you know color commentary or yeah. uh play-by-play either in an online platform or there in-house you know as sort of the hype man yeah like like in wrestling and my name for that was or is still uh joe mama Oh, 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 oh God! This is the best. <laughs> um, did you have? Do you have a uh, some like some some lines that are your stick? Do you have a couple of ca- like catchphrases? 
Well, I did. They they recently changed the scoring in roller derby. You used to be able to get five points on a pass when you would pass four people in a pack and then you'd pass the other jammer that was stuck. And mm-hmm. so you could score five points on a pass as a jammer. And so I used to yell out Cinco de Rinco, in a very <laughs> long, extended uh, way. Right. And that was sort of my catchphrase. And um, I and I still say I I'll say Quattro Dorinko, but it doesn't have the same ring. As it does Cinco not. Dorinko. Does not. Jo- Joe, I have a uh, I have a special request. Could you do? Oh yeah. Cinco Dorinko call, please. <laughs> give, me, give me a sec. Ready to go. <laughs> should... Okay, hold on. Cinco Dorinko, Demba. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Oh, you no, can tell but, I've actually done that before. Yes, sir. I can. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we're gonna have to have a uh, a follow up podcast just on this. You, well, you said you do uh, reannouncing. Do I mean why not do a podcast on roller derby? Right? There's got to be one. There are a couple out there. There was one a few years ago that was really great. It was called uh, Derby Deeds. Okay. And they did a lot of stuff back then. Man. And I think the podcasts are still out there, but that takes a lot of energy. I'm not yeah. sure I have the, the capacity. I mean, I can't me imagine it, the, the amount of work that <laughs> amount of work that you do to put this together. That's right. <laughs> All right. So uh, I may need to, uh, to to take a break to recover here. But <laughs> oh, sure. We'll, we'll move on. Now, but now, tell me this: I, I'm going to lose my mind if your roller derby announcing isn't the answer to the following question. Is there, is there one other thing that people would never guess about you? No, this is, this is a thing associated with being a vet. Actually. I go. I have a photograph of me sliding on a skateboard rail in front of an F-117 stealth fighter. What? (laughs) What was the deal? Well, how'd you get this thing? It was my last day at Holloman Air Force Base, which is where the F-117s were for their sort of final assignment. Mm-hmm. And this is January 2001, give or take. And a friend of mine was a maintenance officer for the F-117s. And I said, look, Emily, I'm leaving tomorrow for Germany. I need to get one photo in front of the stealth. She's <laughs> like, yeah, that's no problem. There's, you can take pictures from this angle, whatever. I said, Yes, but I need to bring in a rail into the hangar and have someone film me skateboarding in front of the F-117. And she right. said, no problem. Let's, let's do that. So I had a truck. I had a rail. I drove the truck out. Well, it was a friend's truck. I drove the, my friend's truck out to onto the flight line, yeah. loaded the rail in front of the F-117. And it was January. It was like January 4th. So it was, even though it was New Mexico, it was, it was cold. I hadn't warmed up. I was in my BDUs. And here I am trying to grind this rail, skate this rail uh, in front of all these maintenance people, in front of her, in front of some <laughs> of my friends, while I was pretty cold. And, you know, a couple of photographs turned out okay. But it's, it's, a, it's a cool photo, anyway, of the F-117. But if you look, you know, you kind of tilt your gaze down a bit and you see little me on a blue rail on a skateboard <laughs> sliding in front of that thing and it's it probably no one else has that photograph out there and it's probably sort of one of my favorite things one of my favorite things from the being in the military 
do you have this up anywhere? Do you have it like on your on your Facebook or anything? It is. I'll uh, I'll send you a photo. I'll send you a copy of it to your email. I, I can't remember if the show notes let me put a uh, put a picture in there, but I'll definitely put it in there. If you're okay with it, I'll put it in the show notes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Oh, you are the best, Joe. This I'm I'm exhausted right now <laughs> after, <laughs> after the beginning of the show. Goodness gracious. All right, though. Let's hear a little bit, maybe three, four minutes here, three, four, five minutes about where you went into the military, what you did while you were in, and maybe if you wanted some deployments or, or whatever, but kind of encapsulate your, your military career before we talk about the things that mean the most to you from that service. Okay. Sure. Sure. Well, when I got to Notre Dame, I had no intentions of being in the military. And when I realized how expensive school was, I sort of was looking for other options on how to pay for it. And strangely enough, I poo-pooed the idea of the military with some of my high school classmates. Two were going through ROTC, and one was going to the Air Force Academy. And I made this joke about uh, you're trapped for four years or whatever after you get out, blah, blah, blah. And so I end up getting to school and realizing I need some money somehow. So I probably within a month of being in college, I signed up for ROTC and I sort of shopped around a little bit. I went to the Navy first, talked to them, went to the Army second, talked to them, and then I talked to the Air Force. And the reason I went with the Air Force, strangely enough, is because they were the only ones giving out 100% full tuition scholarships. Oh, and wow. I said, well, that's <laughs> that's the uh, <laughs> that's the branch for me if you're going to pay for the University of Notre Dame at a hundred percent. Yep. <laughs> school was pretty, school was pretty pricey. And so I enrolled in a program uh, in September of 1993. And at the end of my freshman year, my commander retroactively gave me a scholarship, which would cover the next four years and half of my freshman year. That's awesome. And so it was incredible. It was probably, I think I've never seen my parents happier. Yeah. And me receiving a full ride ROTC scholarship. And I'll, I won't forget because my commander was a former POW, oh, actually wow. uh, good friends with John McCain. They were together uh, in Vietnam and an F-16 pilot and just, just an incredible person. And so I, I kind of won't ever forget the opportunity that he gave me. So, you know, did the ROTC thing and I commissioned in 98. And then I was stationed at Holloman Air Force Base. And just like, Jared, from your previous podcast, I was assigned as a civil engineer officer. Interesting side note to Jared is that his commander at Hickam was a lieutenant with me at Holloman Air Force Base. So it truly Very is cool. a, a small world uh, in the military. If you've did, ever, you all, uh, did you all know each other? Do you and Jared know each no, other no. professionally? Or? No, no. I think that um, Jared probably got in after I got out. Yeah, okay, so right. we we didn't we didn't cross paths that way. I, I'm sure he knew some of my friends that were instructors at the academy. So I think our again, and then he also his first commander was a was a lieutenant with me at Holloman. So that was pretty interesting. Yeah, it's really cool. So being a architecture major in a civil engineer squadron, that's kind of where they stick all you know mechanical engineers, construction managers, electrical engineers. You know, big big nerds go in civil engineer squadrons. Right, and. You know, <laughs> It's fun. It's, it's like birds of a feather. And so just like Jared, I was managing construction projects uh, at the base level. And when my commander found out I was an architect, he just started letting me go do design work around base. He's like, there's things that need to be done. 
we don't really have anyone to put them together. Why don't you do it? We'll figure out a way to fund it. So I started doing landscape projects. I started doing VIP lounges. I got uh, volunteered. Well, I asked a volunteer for these design charrettes at bases around the world. So I went within four months of being active duty, I went to Korea for two weeks to do a base comprehensive plan. So a large scale urban planning with a unit out of San Antonio. And then I did the same thing a few years later uh, at McCord Air Force Base in Washington state. So that was a lot of, a lot of fun. You just volunteer yeah. for stuff and they, and they give it to you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I did deploy to Saudi Arabia for Operation Southern Watch. If you can remember those days back 2000. And after I got back, I got an assignment to Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany. And I basically followed my wife. So I arrived there in January 2001, which was living in Europe was fantastic. I have to say that's one of the, one of the great perks of the military is being able to travel and especially being stationed in Germany was, was really wonderful. Pretty good year, 2001, until obviously September 11th happened. That changed everything. I'm sure you can relate to that as well. Yep. That occurred and within 11 days my wife deployed and they couldn't tell me where she was heading i kind of surmised after a week or two where she was but i didn't really have a return date for her and sort of at the base level we were locked down and prepping for whatever incidences were happening and also the the amount of throughput that was happening in europe uh, from stateside stop in germany refuel and then they would head out to Afghanistan or wherever else they were running operations out of at uh, that time. Sure. You may have already said, but what's your, what was your wife's job in the Air Force? She was a logistics planner. And I think they've con- consolidated that career field at this point. But she basically was a how to get stuff from here to there <laughs> and managing all the stuff that comes in. So she went to Diego Garcia, which is a base I'm sure you're familiar yep, yep. with. And she was there before the bombers and all the bombs arrived to sort of bed down the base, prepare it for all the operations that were coming in and out, and then, you know, set up the base for, for continued operations during, um, during the Afghanistan uh, fight. Really, really cool. So how long, uh, how long were you stationed in Germany? We were there, I was there three years. So okay. I got there in 01 and left in 04. And then and, um, did, were you in Saudi Arabia? You're in Saudi Arabia after that, correct? Was it immediately? No, no, after before, that? before okay. 2000, okay, so yeah. right, right before that. So it's interesting because, you know, in Saudi Arabia in 2000, I could drive off base. Yeah. They let me and another lieutenant drive off base. We had some stuff to do uh, in Riyadh. And so we drove in Riyadh. And I'm like, letting two lieutenants <laughs> in, a, in a car in downtown Riyadh was an interesting choice uh, by yeah. the Air Force, but they let us do that. So I was in Germany again um, for those three years. And the last two years I was there, I was in charge of the readiness flight in civil engineering, which really was like emergency management. So we had like white powder responses. We had biological responses, all the kind of stuff, suspicious packages that were happening at the base, we, my, my unit would respond to that. And we trained everybody on how to wear all the gear, you know, for chemical attacks. And so prior to Iraq kicking off, we really spent so many months at all hours training about, I think the number was about 10,000 people. We trained going through the base, from the base, military, civilians, 
probably CIA operatives, whomever was coming onto the base. We were training them 24, 24 mm-hmm. And so my, my unit was very busy. My flight was very busy and it was really, really interesting times. And it's interesting how much we trained for things that really never happened in Iraq yeah. uh, in terms of like chemical weapon uh, scares or the like. So part of my training to be a trainer for that was I went to Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri for a few months and learned how to wear all the gear. And then they actually expose you to chemical weapons while you're wearing the gear, which is super scary. uh, (laughs) But it teaches you to kind of trust your equipment, as as you know. uh, Again, that whole military thing about, hey, trust your gear, trust your trust your buddy. And that was the whole thing about, you know, going through that training did, with the uh, army. Did you have to hit yourself with an epinephrine pen? No, I did not. But <laughs> <laughs> it, we got to, we got to shoot those pens off because the instructor wanted us to see how powerful the, the spring was yeah. in the, in the pens. So we shot those, the epinephrine probably, you know, 20 feet across the classroom <laughs> in, in learning, you know, where to put this, like not, not in your butt because there's a, there's a, a nerve there. Like the thigh is a good spot, but you're going to get all of it and it's going to come fast. And so it was intense to kind of learn all that. That's funny. Okay. So we're in, uh, you're finishing up your tour in Germany. Where, where'd you go uh-huh. for that? So kind of more mellow at this point, my wife was getting out and we, the goal was trying to get somewhere to like a larger metropolitan area so she could kind of start her career, um, whatever that was going to be. And so, I talked to my assignments officer about doing an ROTC assignment, and that's what I got. So I became an ROTC instructor at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. Very nice. Uh, so 2004, we arrived to Fort Collins, and uh, what a great assignment, teaching cadets and, and working with cadets and, and training them in that environment. Uh, and I'm still very much in contact with my cadets, and I, I use air quotes when I say cadets because a lot of them are majors now or meeting their lieutenant right, colonel right. boards. And so it's interesting to see that that a, amount of growth that happens when you're a college student between, and then especially the amount of growth that happens between you being a lieutenant and you being a major is, is pretty exponential. So I, it's it's been enjoyable to kind of follow their careers. They are commanders in various locales. Um, one is an attache and cutter. They are flying C-17s or F-35s, or they're out and already flying for the major airlines. So it's been fun to kind of keep in touch with them. And uh, I'm able to do that with social media and just, you know, keeping in touch with them uh, sort of on a regular basis. And a lot of them are from Colorado. So when they come back to visit their families, I usually get a chance to to have dinner with them or or go out for a drink and and catch up with them in person. It's been pretty great. And did you exit the service after that tour? Yes. So I thought it would be a good idea, you know, since we were already sort of in a major metropolitan area, to kind of get out at that point. And it was right at the nine year point for me. And so I didn't want to keep moving my wife around. Right. She had established herself uh, with a really good career. And so I said, well, let's, let's move down to Denver. And that's where we've been ever since. That is a very enjoyable story of your service. And so I'm intrigued to hear what stories out of that. How, how long was that? You said nine, nine years, right? Nine years. Yep. Out of that nine years, the things that now, when you look back at that, stick with you that mean the most about service when kids grandkids other family members ask you hey weren't you in the air force you'll be able to say yes i was and here's what i remember can you give me a couple stories uh, like that 
Sure. I feel like I could have a story for every month I was in. It's, it was so interesting and, and such a formative part of my life and something that you can't really replace, uh, you know, being a veteran and, and sort of taking all the opportunities that came your way. But I'll, I'll share this story with you. It's, it's more of a humorous one than anything else. So when we were in Saudi, it was July 4th. You know, I was there in the summer. It's so hot. And we were working as usual because no one got any holidays on deployments. <laughs> and my boss was like, yeah, you can take a, you can leave two hours early. I'm like, oh, that's so, so great. Thank you. It was, it was really appreciated, honestly, because you know, even, even leaving at three versus five o'clock was, was wonderful. So uh, the, the two lieutenants, myself, another lieutenant, and then two captains, we, we ventured to, to head back to the living quarters of the base, which was like a 15, 20 minute drive from where the flight line was and where everyone was actually working. So you kind of took a bus back and forth. There was various buses that went back and forth. But if you were waiting at the bus stop and someone drove by with an empty car, they were sort of obligated to pick you up because it was sort of the base rule. Like you're driving from uh, the op side to the living side, you know, pick someone up and vice versa. So there's the four of us waiting and a sergeant from the British Royal Air Force rolls up in a Land Rover, puts the four of us in his car, and we head back to the to the living quarters of base. And, you know, we're, we're pretty happy that we're, we're getting a ride. It's better than taking the bus in most circumstances. And, you know, we talked to the, the sergeant about what he did, what he was doing to support the mission. A lot of pretty mundane stuff, just kind of small talk conversation. Mm -hmm. So without even thinking, my big mouth and, and my general lack of filter, I just blurted out. So what are you doing to celebrate the 4th of July? I say to this British Royal Air Force Sergeant. <laughs> and as soon as I said this, I realized I shouldn't have said it, but it was there. The words were out hanging. <laughs> and and we all just sat in silence and it felt like an eternity. I, I'm sure it was like three seconds. Right. It was, it was the dumbest thing I've ever said. And he, he pauses. He very dryly and so, so British. <laughs> He says, well, Lieutenant, normally we don't celebrate defeat. <laughs> That's pretty good. And, and I, I, I'll never forget this because the, the look on his face, it was just that, again, every British comedy you've ever watched with that dry sense of humor, it, it was there. It was the, it was, you know, how many 200 years of, oh my God, I can't believe you're saying this to me, American, uh, in his face. It was it was really fantastic so again i have i have a ton of stories and and you know we'll, we'll have to sit down another time and i, and I can share yeah. more with you but uh you know i can what i can say about my time in the military is that it was it was so formative it was uh so it was really wonderful it, you know obviously there was periods where it was difficult but i remember so many good times i'm, I'm so thankful you know i met my wife mm -hmm. in the military you know i'd never thought that you know I'd, I'd meet someone like her in the military much less in in alamogordo new mexico where we, right. we met she's from st louis and you know got to live in europe got to you know go to saudi arabia got to work on a joint task force got to work with cadets got to train cadets got to fly in a t-37 and and the instructor let me fly formation so i mean these are things that 
you can't replace these experiences and and i'm so thankful for them and again they they paid for school like i got to go to a a pretty good university on on the air force's dime and and it's something that i'm 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 super thankful for that is it's hard to communicate what opportunities you're presented with and you're given a litany of them right there but just in day-to-day living it's all of these opportunities went into forming you know, what you are and the things you got to take advantage of and all that. And maybe that's one of the most difficult things to communicate is serving presents this huge spectrum of opportunities that you would obviously never get a chance to do outside of that, uh, of that uh, environment. Right. So it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about it in that perspective. Maybe I can ask this one question on a scale of one to 10 of patriotism, are you a are you a ten? Are you a five? Where where do you, how patriotic are you? <laughs> it, I guess how are you measuring <laughs> patriotism? This is possibly the worst question with another question. <laughs> this is possibly the worst question I've ever asked, by the way. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll I'll tell you. Here's the example. So I consider myself sure. really really patriotic, right? Um, to the point where I may have mentioned it on other podcasts. So one of the things that I remember from service is on a Navy base, they do retreat for evening colors and mm-hmm. that slow bugle call. I still get misty eyed about that. And I get, you know, the hairs on the back of my neck kind of stand up uh, for the bugle call retreat. And that is one of these things that really stick with me about service. Are there s- similar things like that to you that, you know, the flag, the, that kind of stuff, did you get goosebumps about that kind of stuff? It's interesting you bring that up because just this weekend, we had the Air Force Academy graduation. So just south of me in Colorado Springs yeah, is yeah. where that was occurring. And as part of that celebration, the Thunderbirds usually fly out and do a flyover, a, a six-person, a six-jet formation flyover yeah. over, you know, it might be seven, I'm not sure, uh, but they do a flyover over the Academy when, yeah. you know, the cadets throw their hats up in the air, and it's always a very, really cool moment, and usually photographed, you can find tons of photographs on the, on the internet of it. As part of that, they decided to do a flyby through some of the major hospital areas in the Denver oh, wow. um, metropolitan area as sort of a uh, uh, salute to medical workers. Yep. And my wife and I happened to be on a drive because you know you can't we're not getting out uh, and, and doing a lot of things, but we were out on a drive and I was reminded that it was happening. So we found a park that was very empty. There was maybe one other family in that park. It was oh, and it was happened to be sort of near the route of where the Thunderbirds were going to fly. So we, mm-hmm. we waited, we walked the dogs around that area. And then all of a sudden the planes come screaming over the field and we were literally right underneath of it and yeah. we couldn't have picked a better spot. And they took a turn. So you kind of see the, the sides, the profiles of the F-16s as they came over. And I'll tell you that it doesn't matter how long I've been out of the military and how old I am. I will never not get goosebumps when I see a flyover uh, like that of military aircraft, whether it's ceremonial, like it is with the Thunderbirds, or it's operational, or it's a slow plane like a C-5, or it's a C-130, or an F-22, whatever. Yeah. I'll even, I'll even, you know, get goosebumps for an F-18, even though it's a <laughs> Navy or Marine plane. Right. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that. Um, I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily patriotic, uh, but it's something. I mean, I really it's something, it. right? It, it something is something. There. Yeah, I'm. I'm. You know, it, it's 
the the taps uh, in the evenings that will and I haven't been on a bass in a while so it's yeah. it's been a moment since I've heard uh, that I've heard you know Revelry I've heard you know the Star Spangled Banner I've heard um, taps yeah. but I, I can tell you that that probably wouldn't change I probably still get goosebumps hearing those kind of things um, and I really as far as patriotism goes I I, I consider myself lucky to have served um, yeah. and it's not. And it's not because I feel very privileged to have served again because how much it's given me, you know, both educationally and and in and sort of life experience, and it's returned so much more to me than I ever thought it could. And so my level of patriotism is 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 really tempered by that. And one thing that I can I can say is that I'm I defend a lot of people's right to say whatever they want because of my service. So um, free speech, I'm all for it, you know, uh, say what you want about <laughs> yeah. about everything. And, uh, you know, one of the things about this country that makes it great is, is the amount of uh, dissent we can have and the discussions that we can have and we can help each other out with those kind of things. So, yeah, the, that's, I mean, that's in, kind of a long-winded answer. <laughs> I, I'm in violent agreement with you. The next piece here, and I... I I'm stopping myself because I wanted to trade stories with you, but I don't want it to be about sure. me, but it's, but, but all that stuff you said that you, there's, you know, military equipments, uh, you know, for me, I was a submariner. So seeing submarines driving through the Navy base and seeing a carrier in port, you're like, that's pretty oh, yeah. impressive. You know, it's cool. Uh, the next part here is we kind of move towards the end of the show is I wanted to hear the thing in, in what you're doing now and in your work with, JLL and you're going to, and if you could talk a little bit about what your current job is with JLL, what is mm -hmm. not just your job, but what is the part that you're passionate about? And maybe it's work related or maybe it's not work related. It's something you do in, in your off time, but I want to hear a little bit about what your current job is and what the feel of that is. And then if you could, what you're passionate about. Sure. So I'm in uh, PDS project and development services as a senior project manager on ground up banking facilities. So, and the reason I'm I'm in that realm is with my architecture background, having you know worked for the better part of uh, 12, 13 years as an architect in a design capacity and a manager capacity. Um, and how I got to JLL is through a classmate of mine from architecture school who has been at JLL a while, and he recommended that you know, hey, I should come check it out and and try and see what this sort of pivot in my career uh, might be like. And so I really asked him a lot of questions and and got a lot of feedback from him on, on his day-to-day -day and, and how he's working and it happened that uh, a large-scale design project I was working on was terminated by the client so the contractor was sort of uh, terminated for convenience by the client and since we were the architect we kind of were terminated as well and after I made sure that my team you know that I worked with was going to be taken care of by the office of the company I worked for I started the job search sort of in earnest at that point, and that's how I got to JLL, and it's been great. Uh, I really enjoyed their focus on training and learning, uh, spooling me up to understand the process, understanding everything about how JLL works as a company, and, and really kind of distilling it down to how personnel and relationships work, and things like the diversity and inclusion initiatives, just like what we're doing now, the VetNet stuff, Building Pride, uh, Asian Americans, commercial real estate, these things are, are 
very robust and very active and I'm, I'm really excited about th those kind of things and the focus that the JLL has on them and the ability for us to take, you know, this, this hour and, and have this conversation and talk about things that are uh, very specific to you and me, but wonderfully, if we share them with the rest of the company, they can get a better understanding of, of veterans and how veterans work and, and, and maybe the things that, that get us up in the morning and, and get us excited and share those experiences with them. Because uh, maybe some people haven't, they don't have friends that are veterans and they don't really know what that mm -hmm. life is like. And, you know, what better way than to share this with them and share these experiences with them. And it, it's really a wonderful thing that JLL does. And kind of to pivot to, you know, what I'm passionate about is that, you know, as, as I've learned pretty much throughout my entire career, both military and, and civilian, is that relationships are, are paramount. Um, your, your family relationships, your business relationships, those things sort of form you, those things kind of get you going. And what I've learned during this sort of time of quarantine is that it's a really good opportunity to catch back up with people you maybe haven't talked to in a while. Um, we have more time, uh, I mean, right, and, I, and I put that in air, air quotes again, to potentially spend with people that are not normally in our immediate viewpoint. I'm not going out to eat at restaurants. We're not going to the movies. We're not spending so much time uh, within Denver. So with more time at home comes now I've got the ability to do these virtual happy hours with, with friends. I mean, I've, I've done a, a couple of weekend meetings uh, on the computer with my family. I have like 20 plus cousins on my dad's side. And so we, oh, wow. <laughs> it, it was kind of a mess getting together, but it was, it was a lot of fun uh, chatting with them. Um, you were putting Zoom to the test? Is that right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, for sure. Um, I met up with um, with some of my old, uh, I was in a band in college and met up with some of them online. I used to work at a, at a, in my summers between college years, I used to work at a camp for underprivileged kids and some of the staff members and, and counselors, we got together a couple of days ago to talk about how things are going. And it's the 50th anniversary of that camp. So we were talking about how to wow. how to make that uh, interesting experience. And, and, I, and I've always done a decent job of keeping in touch with people. I, mean, I, I love sending postcards and I love receiving postcards. But this sort of quarantine has kind of allowed, I feel like, allowed a lot of people to reconnect in ways that we didn't necessarily think was possible. The technology was always there, but maybe we didn't take advantage of it like we should have. And you know, the more and more I realize how important relationships are, the more I want to reach out to folks. And I'm thankful that the that JLL really has a focus on relationships and a focus on networking. And they, they kind of make that, you know, one of their important goals to to network from within, network from from uh, from around and, and really get to know people. And, and I'm, I'm really thankful for that. And, and I think that's something that I, I can keep continuing to do as a JLL employee. Again, I'm in violent agreement. That is exactly the stuff that I get out of of JLL as well. And again, it feels uh, I feel privileged to to have the opportunity to do this kind of stuff, like you were saying. So, so I appreciate you putting that uh, into words. And I couldn't have said it better myself. It's been a heck of an interview, Joe. I'll be honest with you. I laughed. I cried. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna need to take a break after we get done with the show. <laughs> no, it's. It's been great. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and, and what what you do with this podcast and what you do for 
for the veteran community at JLL is, is great. And I'm encouraged by the participation and also yeah. just the, the willingness of people to kind of open up and, and, and talk about themselves and, and their experiences. And I think this kind of stuff going out there to, to everybody uh, goes a long way. In fact, my boss, I told my boss that I was doing this interview today. And he got, he got super excited about it. He's like, Oh, I can't wait. You got to share that with me. You know, I'll share it with my boss and, and oh, you know, yeah. we'll share it with Chicago. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm excited. Cause again, nothing I'm, I'm saying here, I, I would, I wouldn't say to anyone else and I wouldn't not say in a public forum. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty much an open book with a lot of this stuff. And, and the more that people can understand what makes me tick and what gets me excited. Like I'm, I'm super happy to share it. I'm, I'm going to just have to come up with a way for future interviews that I can modulate my cackling laughter when people bring up stuff like, <laughs> like roller derby. <laughs> so truly a, a, a pleasure to, to have this interview today. Uh, I enjoyed it. Here's, we close the show. Uh, do you have any social media you'd like to put out there? Any causes you like to, to wrap? How can people connect with you if they'd like to reach out? Uh, LinkedIn is perfect, uh, especially for this kind of professional stuff. Love to chat with people, even even on Skype. Uh, reach out, you know, via email, and I maybe mean, you could put a link to my email address if people want to get in touch with stuff. Yeah. And and love to love to talk to people about uh, anything and and all things. And and the more I think that we can kind of sort of spread our wings uh, with with folks uh, in the JLO community, the the better. And yeah, love to love to have more conversations about these kind of things. Absolutely, and I will I'll link that. And I'll again, if you can send me that picture of you grinding a rail, I think is that is that the right sure. term? Is that right? Uh, well, technically, grinding is more on the trucks, and sliding okay. is more on the board. I was on the board, so it's oh, definitely, we definitely be, sliding. We want to be technical about it. <laughs> if you want to email with that, I see you got the Joe dot with no numbers attached to it. You are the Joe Cruz, right? <laughs> I was so surprised by that because, and, and this, again, this is another tangent, but I used to work for a, a Spanish company out of yep. Madrid. Oh my Lord, and what was your number? When, right, well, I said, you know, my name was, uh, you know, Joe Cruz. And they're like, okay, your email address is uh, Jose, J-C. And I said, how is there not another JC at this company of 140 architects based out of Madrid, Spain, and That's also ridiculous. the Dominican Republic? And I was so surprised that like, there's not a Juan Carrillo or a uh, Jesus, you know, something else. And I was amazed that they had uh, JC for me. So I, I'm like, well, anything is possible uh, to, to have just the only Joe Cruz. But it's it funny that another company I worked for, there is a Joe Cruz there. And I was, again, I was surprised. It's unbelievable. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. Tiny victories. And so hang, hang tight on the phone. I'm going to wrap up the show here. Then we'll, uh, we'll hang up after I close the show. But hey, everybody who tuned in, I appreciate the support. Reach out if you want to be on the show. This is the Midwatch podcast. And looking forward to, to shows on down the road here. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to Jones Lang LaSalle's The Midwatch Podcast with Dan Ettinger. Look for us on the web and social media, and please share with friends and family. Thanks for your support. Like us wherever you listen to this podcast and stay tuned.